great. It's the Coaching Tree Podcast, Episode 2. Ryan Tutel, along with Colter Nuanas. Thanks for being here. And Coulter, we're very excited to release this second episode featuring Mike Montgomery. He was the uh, head coach of the University of Montana from 1978 through 1986. Eight fantastic seasons. Obviously went on to have an exemplary career uh, with Stanford, Cal, and the NBA team, USA. You could go on and on. But Mike Montgomery, uh, of the living coaches, he may be the central figure in terms of being responsible for what became the Montana men's basketball coaching tree, both hiring, uh, starting with Stu Morrill after him, but also other places that he went at Stanford, at Cal, bringing guys in, grooming them, and those fellas going on to become head coaches in their own right even Travis DeCure was on Mike Montgomery's staff at Cal uh, getting yet more experience on a staff in a big time conference. Mike Montgomery definitely the tie that binds and the guy that has really promote is probably the wrong word has really helped accentuate this coaching tree by giving guys opportunities like you said I mean but he also was sort of the origin point in terms of bringing it back around in hiring Stu Morrill and then Blaine Taylor coming back to the program and recruiting Larry Kristoviak and Wayne Tinkle to play their playing careers at Montana. So a lot of the roots go through Mike Montgomery, and then like you said, he's given a lot of guys opportunities thereafter as well. Worked with these guys at other places outside Montana, specifically Travis DeCure. And Mike Montgomery's career has been so accentuated by the success that he did have at Stanford as well. They were pretty good early and then became outstanding uh, during his time. And a perennial NCAA tournament contender, then a perennial Sweet 16, and then made it to the Final Four in 1997-1998 for the first time. And when you remember Mike Montgomery's career retrospectively, he's one of, the, one of if not the most successful coach in the history of Stanford and and that's worth noting because he actually even had greater success at Stanford than he did at the University of Montana. Well, it is remarkable, right, because his time at Stanford, Stanford was terrible before he got there. Right. And after he left, they were still pretty good and I think you could feel the lingering effects of what he had built at Stanford, but Today, as we're doing this podcast in the year 2020, Stanford is right back at the bottom of the Pac-12, mm-hmm. and you know it is a hard school to be great at basketball in for a bunch of reasons that are probably pretty obvious, but Mike Montgomery was the right guy and had the right mix to be able to figure that out in that place and tell you what when Stanford's good at sports it's pretty unique and really cool to see and he was the one guy who was really able to bring that to men's basketball and I mean you talk about a guy who's done it all from every single level and now even in broadcasting I mean he's a guy who's as respected as it gets in the sport. Coaching is so often about fit and I think that that's why this tree has been so great because every single one of these guys with the exception of the one time that Montana really stepped outside of the coaching tree, have, have had great success because of fit. And Mike Montgomery is so interesting because he is such a pivotal member of this coaching tree, but also was maybe even a better fit at Stanford than he even was at Montana. Right. Everybody talks about just his preparation, how detail-oriented and, and just how specific he was about everything in his game plans and things like that. And it seemed like that translated at an even higher level at Stanford because he was able to recruit high aptitude guys who could handle really complicated game plans. And Mike Montgomery, tremendously successful at Montana, but even more successful at Stanford. And I think that accentuates his legacy when it comes to this specific podcast. Coulter, hard right or left turn, depending on how you want to do it. Let's say a guy wanted to buy a house. I, for one, would go to Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, there is no other, right? And Mike Bryan, Gary Bryan, Mike Nugent, Berkshire Hathaway, those are the three that are going to show you the way, get you into the best home. Maybe it's a commercial property. Maybe it's a piece of land. Maybe you're selling something. It does not matter. All the expertise you need in one shop at Berkshire Hathaway. Mike Bryan has been a real estate broker in Missoula for more than 20 years, and he has followed the Grizz for more than 50 years. He is a fervent and fierce Grizz supporter, as well as a member of the Grizzly Roundball Club. And he still tries to play basketball himself twice a week. That's pretty good. Travis DeCure has him on the short list as a player with one year of NCAA eligibility <laughs> remaining. So maybe Mike will get out there however right. Coach DeCure needs a little extra help. But like you said, massive experience in the community, and he's got knowledge for you across the board. So if you have any questions, 
Give Mike Bryan at Berkshire Hathaway a call, 406-370-8734. That's 406-370-8734 for all your real estate needs. Mike Bryan and the Bryant team at Berkshire Hathaway, your local real estate experts. And with that, enjoy episode two. A big thanks to Mike Montgomery for taking the time out to talk with us. Please enjoy our conversation with him on Grizz Greats, The Coaching Tree. Well, happy now to welcome into Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree podcast, the man who was the head coach at the University of Montana for eight seasons from 1978 to 1986. He was also an assistant coach for two years before that under Jim Brandenburg, Mike Montgomery. Coach Montgomery, thanks for being here. How are you? I'm doing good. Is it snowing up there yet? You know, about a thousand feet above the valley it is. We haven't gotten too much down low, but it's making its progress down, I think. Just a matter of time. Just a matter of time, no doubt about it. Well, we certainly appreciate you being here with us. And what got you to Montana, though, in the first place, to be an assistant with him? We know that you had been you know, coaching at the Citadel, Colorado State, and bouncing around. How did you get to Missoula? I was at Boise State, and we were in the same conference. And the third year that I was at Boise, I worked for Bus Connor. The third year that I was at Boise, we won the conference. And we kind of took a program – I say we bus took a program that was sort of not in great shape and recruited a bunch of young kids and ended up winning the conference with that group. And in the course of that, I got to know Judd Heathcote pretty well because I used to go to the meetings that the coaches had and I got to meet Judd. And then I came up and did some scouting up in Montana and watched some games and got to know Jim a little bit. And I just think the fact that you know, we'd done that with the Boise program, and Jim was looking around for somebody that knew the league. And, uh, of course, you know, I was young and thought I had all the answers, like most young guys do at that stage. And he ended up hiring me, and it turned out to be uh, quite, a, quite a break for me. I want to ask you about Judd Heathcote. What was it like coaching against him at that time in the Big Sky Conference? Well, he was a dominant figure. Yeah, the coaches' meetings, all the head coaches were there and everything. And, and I'd watch as an assistant because I used to go with Bus because the meetings were generally in Boise. And I'd watch how he kind of dominated the meetings, just his personality, the strength of his personality, how strong he was, and how ultimately the coaches would always look for Judd for the answers. And so, I mean, he was a very interesting guy. And, and everybody that knew Judd had Judd stories to tell. And that never stopped when I got to Montana. Everybody that had played for him, everybody around town, everybody just looked up to Judd so much just because of the strength of his personality and the kind of character he was. So it was fun to get to know Judd. He's a very unique personality, and the influence that he had on everybody that knew him or came in contact with him was significant. In those couple years that Jim Brandenburg was the head coach, what do you remember about working underneath him? That first year, we were we were really good. I walked into a situation. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Jim had recruited a guy by the name of Lee Johnson, who was there on campus when I got there. But Lee was a six ten center, thin, out of Nebraska, that was really a talented player. And and Michael Ray Richardson was there. So little do people know, but they both ended up being first round draft picks. So at, at one point. That year, we had two NBA first-round draft picks at the University of Montana. And, of course, Michael Ray was a special player. I mean, he was so, so talented. And then we had a bunch of, you know, kind of Montana guys, Roshlos and Benny Demers, and I'm thinking of Michael John Richardson, guys that were tough guys that fit in. But you put those two guys on the team, and we were really good. And, unfortunately, some things had gone on with the recruitment of Lee and, and they ended up getting in trouble and ended up forfeiting those games. But we were as good as anybody. I mean, we were really, really good before Lee then ended up leaving. I think he ended up going down to, to East Texas. But Jim was great in all the stuff that Judd used to run. Jim wanted to run the same stuff. And I was kind of a guy that looked and tried to figure out how to tweak it a little bit and fit. And so we had a great run. Jim gave me a lot of responsibility. And the second year we did well. And Jim had some health issues, you know, he was having a hard time. So I ended up having to do a lot more than I was probably capable of doing. But I think that as a result of that, when Jim ended up getting the Wyoming job, I think the athletic director, Harley Lewis, kind of looked at me and said, hey, maybe this guy can handle it. I didn't know what I didn't know at that stage. You know, I was 30 years old and 
thought I had lots of answers, but it was really fortuitous for me, obviously. Were you the only assistant on that staff with Jim Brandenburg? The only full-time. First year, I'm trying to think, I had a guy from Colorado that Jim knew, but it was a part-time job. It didn't pay very much. They didn't have the kind of budget to pay a third assistant or a second even assistant then. So in the second year, Phil Rosemurgy was uh, on the staff, and I'd known Phil from University of Washington. He was a part-time guy over there on Marv Harshman's staff. So we brought Phil over. So there was the three of us. But as far as just full-time guys, it was just the one. And then when Jim left, I ended up making one of the best decisions I ever made and hired Stu Morrill to come in as my assistant, who had been at Gonzaga. And he and I were together for all eight years, and still he's still one of my closest friends. We had talked to Jim about the recruitment of Michael Ray Richardson, and obviously he came there and then Jim took over as the head coach and then was also there for you when you first got started. But everybody talks about how great and transcendent a talent he was, but what was it about him as a player that was so different and so unique from everybody else at that time? Well, he, he had a great basketball body. He was long. You know, he was probably 6'4", maybe 6'5", but he had long arms, and he was thin and very quick and very fast. And, you know, he wasn't a guy that was a household name. He wasn't a guy that everybody knew about. He wasn't a guy that everybody tried to recruit or anything like that. So he had a chip on his shoulder and wanted to prove that he was a great player. And uh, I remember specifically when a guy by the name Freeman Williams came in who played at Portland State. He was the nation's leading scorer when he came in there. And I kind of got Mike to the side and I you know, kind of challenged him. I said, Mike, everybody knows you could score, but can you defend? I mean, could you could defend a guy? We've got the nation's leading scorer coming in here. Let's see what you can do. And Freeman Williams had zero at half. I mean, Michael Ray just literally took him out of the game. He had that kind of ability. And uh, that year that he went into the draft, there were three or four really, really good guards out there. I think Butch Lee was one, and then I think Phil Ford was the other at North Coming. Guys everybody knew about. And yet Michael Ray was the fourth player picked ahead of all those guys. And uh, had he not run into the, a, a tough situation in New York for Michael, he did have a great career, but it, it, it could have been unbelievable because he was an extremely talented player. Coach, when you took over at the University of Montana, your first head coaching job at the Division One level, what was it like? What was basketball like in Missoula at that time in 1978 and 79? Missoula is a great basketball community. I mean, they loved basketball. We had great crowds. I mean, when we played somebody that was good in league or if we got somebody from out of league to come in, we would sell out. I mean, it was the deal. It was the biggest deal. Unfortunately for football, they were out at Dornblazer Stadium, which was just a bad facility. I mean, it was a it was a track facility, and the bleachers were all wood bleachers. And but basketball was the deal. And I remember how big a deal it was to be a Sugar Bear, for example, which was the cheerleading gals and and all that type of stuff. It was just a huge deal in that community. In that league at that time, it was the one place that was as big as anything in the West, really, from a standpoint of basketball. So it made it a really a lot of fun. And we had great success with Montana kids. And I really always thought that was one of the keys for us was because we recruited Montana kids whenever we could. And they wanted to be there. They wanted to play for the university. For them, that was their North Carolina. That was their Duke. That was where they wanted to go to school and play. And so it was really important to them. And it was really a lot of fun. I mean, we had I remember that first year. I don't think we had a great year. We might have been 15, 13, something like that. Boy, Stu and I thought we thought we'd just, we thought we'd won the national championship. We didn't know the community think, didn't think it was great, but we thought <laughs> you know, it was a pretty good deal. I mean, we beat Kansas State at Kansas State, which was a huge win for us. And it was just a lot of fun. I did a lot of growing up in Missoula, Montana. Grizz Great's The Coaching Tree podcast is brought to you in part by Blackfoot Communications. We know that we live in a day and age where security is as important as ever, and particularly online security, firewalls, data backups, and network security are all critical to the success of any business that you have. But we also know it's very complex, and your business demands a simpler approach to network security 
At Blackfoot Communications, they deliver state-of-the-art security solutions. From the perimeter to endpoint devices and remote data backups for businesses across the great state of Montana. Ensure your company network is online all the time, safe and secure with Blackfoot Communications. For more information, visit goblackfoot.com slash business. What were some of your favorite parts about Missoula outside of the basketball world? Downtown. I mean, <laughs> we were just know, there. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just a great college community. Back then, it was a different time, obviously, but all the kids used to walk across the bridge, go downtown, and have a good time, and everybody seemed to stay out of trouble. Nobody seemed to bother anybody too much. You know, you could probably do some things you shouldn't, and, and nobody wanted to make a big deal out of it, and it was just a lot of fun. But we, we had a, a great group of guys. I mean, Robin Selvig ended up being the women's coach there and had just an unbelievable career and Scott Hollenbeck and Kenny Staninger, and the list goes on. We had a great group of young guys that had a lot of fun together, that were really good friends, and it was just a great place to hang out. I met my wife there. We had my two kids there. It was just a time when life was easy, even though the basketball was, you know, was challenging, but it was just a lot of fun. You mentioned Harley Lewis. I'm on the board of directors for the Montana Football Hall of Fame, and we inducted Harley two years ago. And I got a chance to sit with him at the banquet, and he told me stories for like four hours, so many great stories. So what sort of imprint do you think he made on the University of Montana during his time as athletic director? Yeah, it was too bad that Harley left. I thought he was really good. I don't know how to describe him. He's sort of a good old boy, just like what you'd expect Montana to have. Smart guy, just a big kind of a burly guy that, you know, could pick you up off the ground, ex-shot-putter like type guy, track guy but a smart guy and loved the university and had a pretty good feel, a pretty good sense of things, why he would. I really think looking back that, you know, Jim let me handle the radio duties after games and so forth. So, and as I said, at that time I was young and pretty much would say what was on my mind in terms of what happened in a game. And I, I really thought working with Bill Schwanke and talking about the games that that really helped me and for people to get to know me and think that I had the ability to do that job. And I, when that thing opened, when Jim went to Wyoming, which was a great setting for him, a great place for him to go because it was a, a mountain type of environment. He knew Denver very well. He was able to recruit very well out of Denver to Wyoming and had a great career there. But, you know, it was just a place where I fit in and Harley was good. He, let me sort of handle the hiring of the women's basketball. In fact, that's how I got hired without having to go through a long process. He made me director of basketball, which allowed me to circumvent this process because I get elevated from basketball coach. And of course made uh, what turned out to be the best decision for anybody could have made to bring in Robin Selvig as the uh, women's basketball coach who remains one of my close friends, just a terrific, terrific Montana guy. When you look at his career, I mean, one of the great careers in the history of college basketball, period, women's or men's, no question. But what gave you the faith in hiring such a young guy back then to direct a basically brand-new program? There were some impressive people that applied for that job at that time. But women's basketball was a little bit in its infancy. Of course, Robin's whole family, Montana, all basketball players, his sister Sandy that played, and Robin had worked camp, and I had known him a little bit, and he was just so tuned in to Montana and Montana basketball. And even though he played for the men's team, he really loved just basketball and loved the women's game and the fact that his sister had played and they had a history of that. But I, I got a little nudge from Judd. Uh, Judd called me and, and said, you know, it would be great to keep it in the family type thing. And generally when Judd called and suggested something, you sort of had to listen. You weren't going to blow off what Judd had told you or thought was a good idea. Interestingly enough, and I'm sure this story has been told, but one of the people that we did interview was Tara Vanderveer. She was one of the other candidates. So essentially we chose Robin Selvig over Tara Vanderveer to be the coach at Montana. And I think it's worked out extremely well for both of them. 
Coach, you had mentioned, of course, bringing in Stu Morrill, who's an integral part of this whole thing as well. And you said, you know, coming from Gonzaga and one of the best decisions you could have ever made, certainly. But where did Stu pop up on the radar where you said, hey, if I could get this guy to be an assistant with me, that would be great? Well, I don't think it was quite as clear-cut or as simple as that. You know, I didn't know a lot of people. And Montana's a long ways north, you know. I mean, for people that I knew originally from where I'd been and so forth, whether it be a Colorado State or Boise or even back east, you know, Montana was sort of a place that you had to kind of be up in the northwest and up in that area to really know about it. But Stu had been at Gonzaga, and the guy that was the head coach, Adrian Bone Cristiani, who I'd known from the coaching and he was the head coach. Well, he'd gotten fired and Adrian actually called me and said, you know, I got this guy. It's on my staff. You, you really ought to take a look at Stu. He'd be great. And Stu was young. Well, I was young. So, you know, he was two or three years younger than I am, maybe four. So he wasn't that old, but we'd played against him. He was a good player. He's from the mountain area and it seemed like a good fit. And, Stu was great. I mean, he came in and he, he cared as much about the basketball and Montana as anybody could have. Sometimes I used to tell him, Stu, don't, you don't have to worry like you're worrying. Let me do the worrying. I'm the head coach. Right. But he was into it. He gave it everything. And as it turned out, he ended up being a great basketball coach. I mean, I don't know what kind of influence I had on him in terms of what we ran or anything like that. But he developed into such a good basketball coach at Montana, Colorado State, and then Utah State. I mean, he was one of the best coaches in the West. And nobody really knew that, which is too bad because he's a great coach. Recently, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal talking about some of the influences that the stuff that you and Coach Morrill were doing offensively at the University of Montana have then had 25, 30 years later with the Golden State Warriors. What do you think of just the offensive innovations you guys were able to sort of create? And what do you remember about Coach Morrill from that aspect? It's an X's and O's aspect. Well, we ran good stuff. And, you know, we basically it started sort of with what Judd ran. And he ran an odd sort of an offense. He had a side post and he ran it to one side of or I'm going to bore you with all the details, but I sort of looked at it and thought that I really liked a lot of the stuff that they ran, but I thought there were some things that you could run it to both sides and you could do this. And over the years, we sort of changed the offense. And I mean, I used it all those years, 18 years at Stanford, and we, of course, had great success there and used it at Cal as well. And it works. It was really good stuff. And it would work today if people would still go back and use some of that stuff and the cuts off the low post and all that type of thing. And then Stu took it a step further. He had some things that he did. Uh, excuse me, we got a little phone going off here. But then he took it and ran some stuff and some back screens and developed stuff even further. And people that saw that liked it and sort of used that. I think maybe that where may have gone to the NBA, but there's a lot of guys, uh, Blaine Taylor, Wayne Tinkle, uh, that all use that stuff that we used to run. Larry Kristoyak, they run all that stuff at Utah. So I, I'll walk into those gyms and I'll walk those, watch those guys practice because I do some games for television, and I'll watch them run the same stuff that we ran. They'll tweak it a little bit and adjust it to their personnel, but it still works. It's the same cuts. It's the same ducks you know, strong and weak and all that kind of stuff. It's fun to see that stuff. I love going to watch Chris Goes practice at Utah because he runs a lot of that same stuff and he uses a lot of the same terminology. You told us a little bit about the Big Sky Conference and the landscape of the league in the 70s, but in the 80s, Michael Ray Richardson, obviously one of the defining figures in the Big Sky Conference, Derek Pope, another great player in Montana, but what else do you remember about the league? Who were some of the powers at the time? Who were maybe your guys' toughest games when you were the head coach in Montana? Well, Weber State, the league was, was really good at that time. You know, you had Reno, you had Boise, obviously, you had Idaho. And so the league was good. I mean, there were some really good teams. And I think that probably the one team that was always the constant was Montana. But, you know, Weber State, Neil McCarthy, they were very good. They were always at the top. Seemed like for a while we were always battling with Weber State. Then Don... Munson got in there at Idaho, and he had a really good run. They were ranked in the top ten at one juncture. 
and we seem like we battled them. And then Sonny Allen comes in down at Reno, and of course they're going to be able to recruit a little different player down there than the Big Sky was used to. So it was it, it was a really good basketball league. It was hard to win, and then that trip to Northern Arizona was always really really tough. The stories trying to get up to Flagstaff in the wintertime and stuff was was always kind of an adventure a little bit. But it was a good league, and uh, now it's changed a little bit. They've added a lot of different schools in there. I see Idaho's back in there, which is good. Weber continues to be good with Randy Ray. But I would say that Reno probably was a place that, because of the nature of where that school was and, and the type of kids that Sonny recruited, they, they got to be pretty good there for a while. A couple other players that you recruited and played for you that are pertinent to this, uh, a couple of big guys, Larry Krasoviak and Wayne Tinkle, of course, and – when you brought those guys in, first of all, what were they like as people and as players at that time? But also, were they kind of on your radar as, hey, down the line, these could be some future coaches, whether at Montana or elsewhere, that that might be something that they'd end up doing? Because obviously they're tremendous basketball talents. Their careers speak for themselves. But did you see that over the course of your time with them when you were coaching them? You know, not really. I had Wayne just for a year. Wayne had a great basketball mind. You know, he big guy, great hands. But Chris Gall was a guy that we earmarked early on, and if people would have known how good he was or how good he was going to be, they, he'd have been recruited by everybody in the country. As it was, Washington State, I think, gave him a look-see. Wyoming tried to recruit him a little, but he wasn't highly recruited. But when he came down and moved to Missoula, lived with his brother there, played at Sentinel High School, Bill Langless was the coach, if I'm not mistaken, at that time. Larry was a six seven, maybe 195 tough guy and hard worker and the kind of guy that we always won with, the kind of guy we wanted to recruit, Montana kid that loved the game and going to give you everything he had. Well, and he grew and he got really, really strong and physical and he's dominated the league. I mean, you got him the ball inside and he was going to score it or make you pay for it. And, you know, and then he went full circle. He, he got out and he played the league for a number of years. And when you're around basketball that long, Married a gal that had played basketball at Wisconsin, Milwaukee, I think, Jan, and he got back in it and uh, was assistant in the NBA for a while and then came back to Montana and did a great job. And he's done a great job at Utah and Wayne's done a great job at Oregon State. So it's fun to watch those guys. I mean, it really is. And when I go to practice, they're using the same terminology. You can see them do the same drills. And every once in a while, they'll make a comment that I had made 35 years ago, and you just chuckle, you know, because that stuff sticks with you when you're young. Something about something a guy did or didn't do, and you get on him in a certain way, and you kind of laugh, and, you know, you feel good because they remembered something or it stuck with them uh, when you said it. Larry Kristoviak remains the only three-time Big Sky MVP in program history. He's the only player in the history of the Big Sky Conference with 2,000 career points and 1,000 career rebounds. What do you think of just his legacy that he left? Aren't you amazed that some of those numbers still stand up today? Yeah, I kind of am. The thing, the thing about it, 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 you could turn it around a little bit and say it was a perfect situation for Larry because of the way we played, uh, even even at Stanford and at Cal, very low post oriented. You know, we worked really hard to run things to get the ball to the low post. My feeling always was that. You know, a four-footer is a heck of a lot of a higher percentage shot than a 25-footer, although it's really changed now with the three-point shot. But uh, we worked hard to get the ball inside. And if Larry had an angle inside, if he could get a, get a leg in front of you and get you down on his back, you know, he was going to get position, hold a position, and going to be really difficult to defend. So uh, we utilized Larry. I mean, we used him, and he took advantage of it, and we took advantage of him. And he was a horse. He was a guy we went to. I mean, there was no question about it. But you're right. It is amazing, particularly with the you know, advent of the three-point shot where guys are shooting a lot of those things from, from deep. Coach K was talking about the advent of the three-point shot and how that was used in the big sky before any other league in the country. When you were going through that portion of having that added to the game, how that influenced the way you started to think about basketball in different ways? I think it's too easy of a shot. I mean, I don't think the value of a 20, 20 foot, nine inch. Now it's moved back a little bit. Shot should be worth the whole point. You know, I think a good jump hook inside in traffic or fighting up through traffic or an offensive rebound. I just think that's, 
the beauty of the game is down in the paint and the physical part of it as compared to a guy launching from deep. But it clearly now with analytics and the way everybody's looking at the game has changed the way people are looking and and playing the game. And, and nobody's a better example of that than the Golden State Warriors with Curry. And it, it does. It's a different deal, you know, and it does open up the inside. I still like old school basketball. I still like low post basketball. But the value of it, if you look at it simply, you know, you shoot 33% and three, and it comes out to one point per possession versus 50% for two, which is hard to do. If you go into a gym anywhere to recruit, is all kids are working on three-point shots. I mean, we used to occasionally run across a six, eight, nine, ten player that, you know, and they'd say, oh, man, this guy, and he can shoot threes. And I'd say, I don't want a six, ten player to shoot threes. I want a six, ten player to <laughs> You know, get his back to the basket down in there and score inside. But that was always, I said, I can find guards that can shoot three, but I, I don't, you know, they can't go post up. It's changed the game. I still like a balance of low post basketball, physical play, along with an occasional. I think they could move the line, frankly, out to the NBA distance now to value that, make it a harder shot. You know, when I started in the NBA, you rarely saw an NBA player go left to right, dribble left to right at the three-point line, as far out as it was in the NBA. That was a hard shot for a guy to, to go left and pull up from three. Now everybody does it. Now stepping in from three, yeah, that was the shot that you'd get. From an inside-outside look, guys would step in. Now guys can shoot the thing 24, 25 feet going left, going right, and it doesn't have the value that it once did. Grizz Great's The Coaching Tree podcast is brought to you in part by Blackfoot Communications. We know that we live in a day and age where security is as important as ever, and particularly online security, firewalls, data backups, and network security are all critical to the success of any business that you have. But we also know it's very complex, and your business demands a simpler approach to network security. At Blackfoot Communications, they deliver state-of-the-art security solutions. From the perimeter to endpoint devices and remote data backups for businesses across the great state of Montana. Ensure your company network is online all the time, safe and secure with Blackfoot Communications. For more information, visit goblackfoot.com slash business. Coach, I want to just ask you sort of a a broad question about your time at Montana because you had talked about, you know, hey, you know, the kids would run downtown. Didn't seem like guys got in too much trouble. You had a great friend, you know, group that you were with with some coaches and so forth. But what was it like to be a young head coach in Missoula, Montana in the late 70s and early 80s? Like Robin Selvig did, a guy could have stayed there forever. It's just you would have worn out your welcome because basketball was so important there that eventually you were going to stumble. And, you know, that's gotten to be sort of the nature of the beast. But it was a simpler time. And I'll I'll say this, even though I've lived in California now quite a while now, when I first got to Boise, Boise was a place that it hadn't been sullied by everybody moving north. It was a place where if you did something wrong, maybe in terms of took a left turn when you weren't supposed to, cop might stop you and say, hey, you know, come on now, you can't do that. And, you know, in fact, I had a guy put a dot in the back of my driver's license and say, if we catch you again, we're going to give you a ticket, you know. And that that was the kind of thing you just didn't ever see happen. And now, of course, as everybody's moved north, they call it Californiation or whatever they call it, you know, where <laughs> everybody's moved north and taken up all the really nice properties and the values up there of change. And I think Montana was just an outpost where you could, you know, it was a $5 speeding ticket. Uh, nobody got too concerned. You could actually, not to mention or promote my, Mike Larson's bar, but you could actually go to Starkman's Bar and Grill and, you know, after work and have a beer or two. The lawyers, the doctors, the judges were all there. And then it sort of transitioned as the students started to come in and the younger group, kind of, you know, the older guys would move out and it just was, everything fit, everything worked. It was a great time. And I just, it's gotten to be more difficult for sure. So it was a good place for me to be for sure. And as I said, there was no real reason to want to leave uh, town. It got small a little bit, you know, where you'd done about what you could do. And, and you knew that at some point they were going to be unhappy with you. And and then you get an opportunity to go to Stanford, a place like Stanford. That just didn't happen out of the Big Sky Conference. So I, w- I was very fortunate to have that happen. But 
I loved every minute of it in Missoula. I got a lot of people that are still great friends. I don't see them all that much, but I was at uh, Robin Selvig's son's wedding uh, in Half Moon Bay, and there was a lot of guys that came down and attended the wedding. It was just like just like old times. When you left Missoula, though, you did not leave empty-handed. You had a bride to go with you, if I understand it correctly, that you found here in Missoula. How did you and, and your wife get together while you were here? Oh, I don't know if I can tell that story. <laughs> it hadn't changed that much. <laughs> you know, in today's times, you uh, the truth of the matter is, Sarah was a senior in college, and I'd just gotten, uh, I think I was the assistant when I first met her, but we actually met downtown, and back those days, it was sort of okay. I mean, I wasn't that old, but you could kind of hang out a little bit, and nobody got too excited about it. So we had our two kids there, as a matter of fact. So when we left, we had John and Annie, and I think Annie wasn't, I don't remember the exact ages, but they weren't very old when we moved down here. It was just, uh, I was ready, and, and she loved basketball and thought I had an answer too. And uh, she's been great. I mean, you cannot succeed in the type of life that a coach uh, lives without a, a wife that understands. But she's loved being a part of it, and she's been so supportive, you know, small town gal, and uh, it, it's been it's been a great 40 years. We'll get into the Stanford and the rest of your career, but one last question about your time at Montana. I know you guys got so close to winning the big sky, but Coach Kristoviak, he talked a lot about just, you know, coming up just one step short. They almost made it, almost made it, but never made it to the big dance. What do you remember about just how difficult it was to make it out of the big sky and did that motivate you when you got to Stanford to get into the big dance? Well, yeah, the thing about a league like that is that you have to win the league, you know, and then when you have the league, tur- actually, the, the, you have to win the league tournament. And there's, you know, the Big West is like that, where if you don't win the conference tournament, you're not going, regardless of what kind of year you had. We did make it to the NIT one year when we didn't win. I thought that we had the best team in the league maybe three out of the last four years I was there, we were good. And I, I don't know exactly where we tied for the regular season league, but at that stage, they started moving the tournament. You know, they moved it to Boise, for example, which was a really a disadvantage for the team that had won it because it was so hard to win in Boise. And so you had now go play on the road. And the one year, I think we ended up playing Boise in Boise on their home court. And the margin of error wasn't very great. Uh, gosh, we had a we had Reno beat at Weber one year. I mean, it was ours, and we made a mistake at the end and lose. Uh, we had Montana State and had no business playing with us. We were up. That was, I think, Larry's senior year, and we had him by seven. And we just uh, this one little guard got got hot for them, and there was a series of circumstances that just kind of broke your heart. That's one, the one regret that you have is that you weren't able to, to get the thing over the top and, and get to the NCAA. Although in that league, it's a, it's a one-time deal. I don't know. I, I really don't know the answer to this, but I'm not sure a big sky team has gone from the league to the NCAA in one games. So it's a one shot deal, but it is exciting. It's what you play for. And, uh, it was disappointing for the kids that played for us because we were good. We had great years. We were good basketball teams. But it just seemed like always seemed something seemed to happen. You already mentioned the fact that, hey, man, coming out of the big sky, going to a place like Stanford doesn't really happen. But it did happen for you. How did that happen? Naively, I had applied for that job four years prior, and they had ended up hiring a guy by the name of Tom Davis, who had had great success at Boston College. And I think at the time, now this is sort of my take on the thing, they wanted to try to win in basketball. They never had, and they hired a guy that had been in the NCAA tournament at Boston College. And they were going to put a little bit of money into it and try to emphasize it a little bit and try to see if they couldn't win in basketball. And then Tom didn't really have much success, didn't go to the NCAA, didn't play postseason, didn't have winning seasons. And so he left, kind of said, yeah, you know, you just can't, we can't win here. With the academics, you just can't recruit the type of player in this league that you need to win. And he left. And the thing was, is that he left me a great group of players. But the fact that I'd applied four years prior, my honest opinion is, and I don't know if they would ever own up to this, is that they'd made the decision that 
we, we can't win here in basketball. So let's just hire a guy that, you know, good guy. We graduated all our guys. We had good academic success at Montana. Always seemed to be organized and played hard. Let's just get a guy in here and, and we'll be fine because we're not going to win anyway. But I really think that's sort of their thought process. But Tom Davis left me with a great group of young players. Todd Lichty, who will go into the College Basketball Hall of Fame this year. Eric Reveno, who played, was now assistant at Georgia Tech, was the head coach at Portland, was on that team. Howard Wright. We had, he left some really good players. And it just, it just worked out. He, I mean, we interviewed and everything that we talked about in terms of who I was and what I thought was important really fit with Andy Geiger, the AD, and what he thought was important. And he took a big gamble. Certainly, people probably raised their eyebrows like, who's this guy? How can he get this job? But I knew some Stanford people from the area that knew some people and they were influential people and kind of said, look, it's okay if you hire this guy and the rest is history. But I recruited a great group of kids that wanted to win. They refused to believe that they couldn't win. And that's when we started to win. That was the first chance we had. Went the NIT, went the NCAA, then I won a game in the NCAA, and that was unprecedented at Stanford. Kind of set the tone for the whole rest of the time. You know, it's it's sort of easy to say, you know, we wanted to recruit kids that really wanted to win and could win, and you did, you know, like you said, you inherited a good group, but Stanford hadn't been to the postseason since 1942, if I've got my numbers right. So what was it specifically that you thought, hey, we can do this at Stanford? Obviously, when you start to do it, it builds on itself, but especially initially, like, how did you dig the well, so to speak, to make that a possibility? Well, I don't think you think that way. I mean, I, I don't. I didn't go in there thinking, "Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to go to the Final Four. We're going to win league championships." It was just you don't pass up a Stanford. You don't pass up the Pac-12 job. You know, I'd interviewed for Colorado. I interviewed at Washington. I interviewed at Oregon, and thought I was a, would have been a good fit at those places. But as it turned out, it was just that. You can get kids at Stanford. It's just you, you've really got to make sure you know where you're looking and what you're looking for because academically it is impossible. And you have to go everywhere and turn over every rock to find kids that qualify. But at the end of the day, when you find a kid that has been brought up in an environment or has the background to do the work, there is only one Stanford. And it's unique in that way. It's got such a great reputation that if you find him, you have a pretty good chance of getting him. Now, you're not going to beat Duke necessarily on a kid or North Carolina sometimes, but we finally got to the point where we actually started to beat UCLA, beat Arizona, and beat some of those people on kids like an Adam Keefe and among others that we were beating those people on these kids who wanted what we had, and then the thing just kind of kept going because – and, and, and frankly, the way I think basketball should be played with the physical part of the game, a little bit more conservative, fit with the kind of kids you would get there. We were big, we were physical, we defended. And if you would give those kids a reason to do something and it made sense to them, they would do it because they're overachievers and it worked really well for us. At a rigorous academic institution like Stanford, then, how do you balance academic and athletic requirements? The one thing that's good about Stanford is that they don't let kids that shouldn't be there. So they can handle the work, and the school knows that. Where they would get in trouble is if they start to compromise. Then all of a sudden it would be a problem for your athletes because they wouldn't be able to do the work, and it would start to act itself out. But they belong there. And, you know, there's a little bit of an old story that, you know, getting into Stanford's the hard part. Once you get there, their job, they, they kind of make sure that you succeed. I mean, they actually do make sure that you end up succeeding. That's what, instead of looking at it and saying it's the kid's fault, they'll look at it and say, well, we're not doing what we should to help this kid get through because he's capable. But I'll tell you what, those kids, at least the ones I had in the years I had them, you drew up stuff and put stuff in, and they got it. You know, you didn't have to keep going over and over, even though I did. They tell you, practice forever. But you could show them something and show them what you're trying to get and why you're trying to do it, what the concept is, and they'd get it. I mean, they'd look, yeah, that makes sense. And so you could run stuff that you might not be able to run at a lot of different places because they understood what you were trying to do. They could handle the load. 
And we were able to do that. We were able to get a lot of stuff in and, and ran a lot of different stuff. And as a result of them understanding, you know, I'd go in meetings sometimes where we'd walk in the locker room and the kids were on the board working on a problem set, some classes stuff. I didn't really lend much help to them doing that stuff. <laughs> they were way above my, my pay grade. <laughs> no doubt. Well, you mentioned, Coach, kind of the breakthroughs early. They sort of set the stage for uh, the middle and end part of your time at Stanford. But coming to Opeek in 1997-1998 in season, when you made it to the Final Four, what was special about that team, and how cool was that, just going to the Final Four for the first time as a head coach? You know, the interesting thing, that wasn't my best team. That was probably maybe third or fourth best team we had. We had, we had a couple other teams that actually could have, I don't want to say should have, because I don't think anybody should, but could have won a national championship. That team was a team that really fit together well. It, just, it was a team that uh, liked each other. Everybody understood their roles. We had guys that, that point guard passed the ball. We had Madsen inside. There was a physical presence, and it just fit really well. We got a couple breaks along the way, which you have to have in the NCAA tournament, i.e., I think Kansas was a number one seed that year, and they were in our bracket. They were the team that was supposed to come through our bracket and go to the Final Four, and they got beat. I think Rhode Island beat them or somebody who we ended up beating later on. But, you know, we played a really good Purdue team that was a a Big Ten champion, and they were good, but they wanted to play like we wanted to play. They they wanted to be physical, and we we were physical, and we were able to win because we were more physical or did it better, even though they were, that's how they won. So we got a lot of breaks along the way. And then we were down, gosh, with a minute to go against Rhode Island by seven and came back and just started trading free throws and stealing the ball and they miss. And then we'd make, and we end up winning at the end to go to the final four and really had a chance. I mean, we had a shot to win against Kentucky. Kentucky kid hit a big three to go ahead and then we had a chance to win it great game and Kentucky ended up winning the thing so it was very special I mean walking out in front of 40,000 in this case in San Antonio you walk down that long hallway and everybody's looking at you and you walk out there it it was really something I mean it was something that none of the guys on the team will ever forget. Coach I think it was the following year that you brought Blaine Taylor in on your staff there and then again when you were at Cal you bring in Blaine Taylor's, you know, protege, and then later assisted coach Travis DeCure, who, of course, is the current head coach at the University of Montana. And in talking to Coach DeCure, he points at you as really the guy responsible for the tree as such, because he says you were the one who would continually bring guys back in, you know, who you had been with at Montana or who you knew or who were maybe one degree of separation like Travis was from you for a time. That seems to be deliberate, right, that you found these guys that you were comfortable with. But what was it about, you know, these guys, a lot of them trafficking through Missoula, through the University of Montana, that you said, I want to continue to work with these guys and bring them up, and even to the point where, you know, Travis DeCure, who's a generation behind you, is now the head coach once again, and the tree just continues to grow. Judd started the success at Montana, really, but I didn't really have much to do with Judd because that was kind of a separate issue when I got the job and then Stu came through. But, you know, Blaine was there when I got there as a freshman. And Blaine was a very smart point guard that understood the game, that got a lot out of his abilities. I mean, not the quickest guy or any of that stuff, but really understood the game, worked very hard at it. You knew guys that had come through the system the way that we had played it. Because whether it be Stu or whether it be Blaine or whether it be English, you knew that they had run the sort of the same stuff and played the same way that, that we'd sort of played and had all that success with. So by having guys that had been involved and knew that sort of stuff, you weren't having to try to reinvent the wheel. You'd say, look, we're going to do this. We're going to play low post. We're going to play off the low post. We're going to play good defense. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And guys understood that and understood you could win with that. So if you followed the teams, if you followed Stu's teams and you followed Blaine's teams and you followed Travis, I knew Travis. I knew him when he was at Montana. I watched him. I knew he went back to Blaine. And Blaine had a lot of success at Old Dominion. And Blaine thought a lot about Travis and was really high on him. So when you have an opportunity to hire guys that understand how you view the game and how it's supposed to be played. And there's a certain trust there 
among all of you, then it, it really works. I mean, Travis is having great success at Montana, and I knew that he would because he, well, it's a long story, but he should have been the coach of Cal, and, you know, they wouldn't be in the dilemma they're in if they would have done that. But he's, he's getting a chance to grow. He's getting a chance to be a coach at Montana. He's doing a great job. And just like I knew he would, because the, the ideas of how you win uh, are the same. Getting Blaine Taylor to come join your staff at Stanford, what would you sell him on? How would you get him to walk away from a head coaching job at his alma mater to come join you in the Pac-10? Uh, I don't know if I can tell this story either. <laughs> he actually called, called me, you know, and he said, Coach, what, what would you think about me coming down and, and working for you? And I said, well, Blaine, why, you know, why would you do that? You're a head coach. And, you know, he said, well, you know, I've been here my whole life, and I just need a change. And as you probably well know, Blaine's had some personal challenges along the way. And I just think he felt he needed to, he needed a change. So, you know, I, I was reluctant at first, but of course, Blaine's been such a good friend for so long and brought him down. And of course, we did win three Pac-12 championships after that. It was in a stretch where we had a really good group of players and Blaine's just so much fun to be around. He's got such a great sense of humor, and, you know, he understands people. He's doing a great job for Russ Turner, who's at Irvine now, who worked for me as well at Stanford and then with the Warriors. He's just a, a really good guy. And, and Blaine, I think, had three of the best years of his life here, frankly. You know, his family, they would go visit Alcatraz. They'd get out, and they'd do things as a family because they didn't know anybody. And it was a great three years. I, I, he may have been there longer, but I know he went through championships when he was here. And then he got the old Dominion job out of it. Tell us about your time in the NBA. What was it like coaching the Golden State Warriors? And what do you think of now what the Warriors have become, one of the great dynasties in all of NBA history? I kind of make the joke that I set the stage for it. <laughs> platform. It wasn't my finest hour. I don't think it really fit my personality. It was probably a mistake on my part. When I got the opportunity, it was one of those things where you say, gosh, how can you not do this? But in hindsight, I probably should have understood that that really wasn't where my strength was. It was very hard for me to relate to the way things are done and how the guys are. And we didn't have a great team. In the NBA, you don't win unless you have better players. You're going to win some, but at the end of the day, the teams with the best talent win because it's a 48-minute game. And we played people tough. We were right there. We were ahead late in the fourth quarter, and the talent would take over. So I wasn't as prepared as I should have been. Uh, I had always thought that I might want to do that, but it was at a stage when I really hadn't paid much attention to the NBA, frankly. I did coach the world championship team with Greg Popovich and George Carl and Kelvin Sampson one year. And we had some issues with those guys. I mean, we had a hard time keeping everybody focused and doing what they were supposed to do. So I should have known that it wasn't going to be a day at the beach. And it, it was hard. Guys wanted to win, but we weren't as talented. And I had a great learning curve. You know, my assistants, one of them was Terry Stotts, who's the head coach of Portland Trailblazers. He was really good. It was great to be around Terry. You know, he understood it because that's what he did. And Keith Smart was one of my assistants that played at Indiana and has been around the league a long time. I had good help. It's just it was really hard for me to look over and when a guy didn't want to practice, decide he didn't want to practice. And they just have certain things in the NBA that they do that I it took me a while to figure it out. By the time I did figure it out, I was out of a job. It just seems like so many coaches who've come through the University of Montana have gone on to be incredibly successful and maybe more successful than people would guess what you're talking about, quote-unquote, just a Big Sky Conference basketball school. Why do you think that's the case? I just think because it's so important there, and the guys that worked there all knew how important it was, and I think they did a great job of hiring people that were people that were were solid people that wanted to be successful, that understood how important it was, and really did it the right way. In a lot of ways, if you look at it, kind of the cradle of basketball on the West Coast for the guys that came through there. Everybody that came through there, with very few exceptions, ended up going on and doing very, very well. And I don't know exactly what it was. I think that the fundamentals, the foundation that was laid 
in terms of how the game should be played, how kids should be treated, the time that you need to put into it to be successful, and how important it was to all of us that was there. It was all-consuming, and that's the way we viewed it. It wasn't a part-time willy-nilly thing. It was, this is who we are, this is what we do, this is how we do it. And everybody carried that on. Everybody went on to the next thing and was able to have success with that sort of an approach to the game. How do you think that your time in Montana set the table for the rest of your coaching career? And how do you think just that whole time period influenced you and also so many of these other guys that have sort of stemmed and and used it as a springboard to great things? I was probably a little immature when I was there. I I mean, socially, it allowed, allowed you some freedoms that you might not have other places. Now, that's probably not fair to say today because things you really can't say or do anything anymore. So you just, it's like, but you were allowed to make a mistake. You know, you could be yourself. You could grow up, which is what I did there, you know, with some great friends. We just had a growing up period and we grew up together and uh, had families and it sort of set the stage for the future. And by the time I got to Stanford, for example, a lot of that nonsense, tomfoolery was sort of out of the way. You know, I had a family and I had a a hard job and and that particular area probably wouldn't have accommodated, you know, going down and playing cards at stocks or whatever it is you would do, go down to the top hat and dance, you know, (laughs) whatever it is, you know, that we, we did. So it was a great place for me to grow up and to mature and to make mistakes, ton of mistakes on the basketball floor with what we did and sort of learn from those things and get better at what I was doing. And it was probably the best thing that ever could have happened for me. We really appreciate your time. We'll finish up with you with this. We've been asking all the coaches this, and in particular, especially since you worked for Jim Brandenburg, his opinion of Montana State is fair to say not very high. (laughs) I'm wondering what you recall about the rivalry and your thoughts about Montana State and the Bobcats. Well, truthfully, I think Montana State's a great spot. You know, it's sort of changed now with the, the whole ski, big sky, and all those things over there was sort of a cow town, I think, a little bit when I was there. You know, you're talking about the liberal arts school, the University of Montana versus the Ag School, all those types of things that go on all over the country. I knew how important it was to beat them. And don't ever tell Robin Selvig I said this, but I had, I thought that that rivalry was maybe not healthy in some ways, how much people put into just winning those games. And I thought that was a little bit unhealthy. And we had the same thing with Stanford Cal, you know, where two very good institutions are very different. Kids go there for different reasons. I think the one thing you always want to do is you want to beat their butts and you want to beat them twice every year if you can. But I just didn't want to hate anybody. I just didn't think that that was the right thing, the right attitude to have in athletics. And so there were some good coaches over there, some good kids that played there that were good players. I think, if I'm not mistaken, we probably had our way a little bit with them, which made it a little bit easier. But once a grizz, always a grizz. So that part's never going to change. Well, Coach, you've been very generous with your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. All right. Nice talking to you guys. Take care. This has been Grizz Great's The Coaching Tree Podcast, Episode 2, with Mike Montgomery. Be on the lookout for a special bonus episode featuring players that played for Coach Montgomery at the University of Montana through his tenure. Some great stories and fun insight from a different perspective on the man who may be the godfather of the Grizzly Coaching Tree. And also listen to Episode 3 with Stu Morrill. Stu Morrill, the outstanding assistant, of course, of Mike Montgomery's, and then went on to be an outstanding head coach at the University of Montana before heading for Colorado State, and then finally nearly two decades at Utah State where he developed one of the great programs in America. So Stu Morrill, our featured guest in Episode 3. 
Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree podcast, is presented in part by Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate. I don't know if anybody moves any more than coaches do, but when they move in or out of town or when you have properties, land, homes, commercial, any type of real estate that you need to buy, sell, Mike Nugent, Mike Bryan, and Gary Bryan, those are the guys who are going to get this done for you. No one knows Western Montana better than those three at Berkshire Hathaway. Golter, tell the people about Gary Bryan. Gary Bryan, the veteran of the group at Berkshire Hathaway Montana Properties, he's a proud supporter of Montana Grizzly Athletics and specifically has always been a huge fan of the University of Montana men's basketball team. He's been selling both residential and commercial real estate in Missoula County for more than 25 years. So if you have any sort of real estate questions or needs, give Gary Bryan and the Bryan team a call today, 406-880-4141. That's 880-4141. Berkshire Hathaway, your local real estate experts. Once again, our biggest thanks to Mike Montgomery for joining us on the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, had a little bit of fun with it, and again, be on the lookout for the bonus episode and episode three with Stu Morrill. For Colter Nuanas, I'm Ryan Tutel. Thanks so much for listening.